the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. Happy April 16th, 2021. I love it when a set of theories come together. Last week, I discussed this being the 32nd anniversary of my walking through the doors of conservatism under the guidance, welcome, and teaching of Lincoln and Aristotle scholar Harry V. Jaffa. Yesterday, we discussed the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations stating that America's founding was woven with white supremacy. One of the things I did not get to say yesterday and wanted to is that when you are prepared to disregard all learning of our founding and the meaning of 1776, you are prepared to say anything or accept anything the progressive or modern age may want to foist onto it for their own purposes. And thus, again, it is no surprise that one of the first things, literally one of the first of the Biden administration was to scrub the 1776 Commission report from all government websites. That report, sponsored by the previous White House, was put together by scholars from the Claremont Institute to Hillsdale to beyond in outlining the best understandings of all of our founding, what it meant to the founders, as well as what it should mean to us. It was a masterpiece. I dubbed it the second best thing the government ever printed since 1787. And the Biden administration took it down from their servers on day one, hour one of their first term. So oppositional and devastatingly so is the true understanding of our founding to the woke progressive teachings of it that they can't even have the original understanding present and available for people to read and understand and learn about for themselves. It is that much of a threat. As Milan Kundera put it, The first step in liquidating a people is to erase its memory, destroy its books, its culture, its history, then have somebody write new books, manufacture a new culture, invent a new history. Before long, the nation will begin to forget what it is and what it was. The world around it will forget even faster. And so in thinking about that and what our U.N. ambassador said, I thought this too is all of a piece. Broadcast from America on behalf of America, that which you want Americans themselves to believe about the down market value of their country, which is no better than and just as bad as other countries. That's what the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. did. Sudan, after all, has Darfur just as the U.S. has Ferguson or Brooklyn Center. And we have Ferguson and Brooklyn Center because it is who we are, after all. And it is who we are, after all, because it is who we always were, after all. And it is who we always were, after all, because it is how we were founded, after all. This understanding of our founding history is novel to most of America or any part of America born before, say, 1984. Unless, unless, unless you lived in the American South from roughly 1845 to 1865, they had that view of our founding, too. 
that it was meant to preserve slavery. Funny, isn't it, the woke progressives have joined the ideological side of the American Confederacy because there was a side that said our founding was not meant to protect, preserve, and extend slavery, but the opposite, the exact opposite. That side was the majority of America. That side was called the Union. That side was led by Abraham Lincoln, and it prevailed. And that prevailing side's history of America thus dominated most knowledge about the history of America until there became a pedagogical and ideological investment in undermining and transforming America based on its root and base iniquity. And thus began the effort to rewrite our victory in 1865 as much as it began the effort to undo our victories based on all our civil rights work in, say, about 1960. Four. The 1776 Commission was an answer to all that, to reteach our history the way it was understood not only by the vast majority of Americans until about a generation ago, but to reteach our history the way it was understood by those who wrote it and made it, to understand the founders as they understood themselves, to understand what they were saying based on what they thought they were saying. Thus it must be scotched and memory hold. What is the memory hole? George, old, George Orwell told us many decades ago. What happened in the unseen labyrinth or memory hole to which the pneumatic tubes led? We didn't know in detail, but we knew in general terms. As soon as all the corrections which happened to be necessary in any particular number of the times had been assembled and collated, that number would be reprinted, the original copy destroyed, and the corrected copy placed on all the files in its stead. This process of continuous alteration was applied not only to newspapers, but to books, periodicals, pamphlets, posters, leaflets, films, soundtracks, cartoons, photographs, to every kind of literature or documentation which might conceivably hold any political or ideological significance. Day by day and almost minute by minute, the past was brought up to date. In this way, every prediction made by the party could be shown by, document by documentary evidence to have been correct. Nor was any item of news or any expression of opinion which conflicted with the needs of the moment ever allowed to remain on the record. All history was a palimpsest, scraped clean and reinscribed exactly as often as was necessary. In no case would it have been possible, once the deed was done, to prove that any falsification had taken place, thus told us George Orwell. So either the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations is unschooled in American history or knows American history and is deliberately distorting it. But either is only possible by scrubbing and memory-holding the truth. And it was this truth, the 1776 Commission, as any commission is supposed to get at, it is this truth the 1776 Commission got. What does this have to do with Harry Jaffa and my anniversary into conservatism? Well, it was Harry who revived this study of Americanism and constitutionalism by resurrecting the serious study of Abraham Lincoln and the Declaration of Independence. As Ken Masugi writes, the informed and honest patriotism of the 1776 report is best exemplified in its treatment of race or better slavery. 
This necessary focus has somehow led malicious critics to condemn it for racism as old Confederate apologetics and alt-right propaganda, among other vain accusations. To the contrary, the argument focuses on the tyranny coeval with slavery so that we might see the abiding political problem with which the founders and Lincoln struggled. Without our common faith in the equal right of every individual American to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the report declares, authoritarian visions of government and society could become increasingly alluring alternatives to self-government based on the consent of the people. Only when we see that the evil of slavery lies in its tyranny do we understand the history of American politics as a struggle, often successful, to realize the Declaration's equality. Abraham Lincoln's determination, as I would not be a slave, so I would not be a master, resonates throughout his speeches. By replacing equality with equity, as the Biden administration seeks to do, this nation would reject what has been its governing principle in favor of interest group satisfaction. This would be wolves ruling in sheep's clothing. Perhaps the best brief illustration of Lincoln's teaching on equality it is, is his short sanitary fair speech toward the end of the Civil War. He begins, the world has never had a good definition of the word liberty. A strange thing for Lincoln to say, don't we have the declaration? But by good, he means put in practice. The shepherd drives the wolf from the sheep's throat, for which the sheep thanks the shepherd as a liberator, while the wolf denounces him for the same act as the destroyer of liberty, especially as the sheep was a black one. Plainly, the sheep and the wolf are not agreed upon a definition of the word liberty, and precisely the same difference prevails today among us human creatures, even in the North, and all professing to love liberty. In this simple parable, we see the problem of equality. Differences are more obvious. For their security, the sheep require a shepherd. But we can't leave the tail at that. The shepherd ultimately wants to consume the sheep as much as the wolf does, doesn't he? Is there then no hope for the sheep? The difficulty lies in the truth of nature, that human beings are a combination of both wolf and sheep. Lincoln is explaining the meaning of the Civil War. Men are not angels, nor can one good shepherd be entrusted with rule over everyone. Even in the North, men united by war are composed in varying proportions of sheep and wolf. One may only pray for some greater portion of the shepherd in them. After all, Lincoln had appealed in his first inaugural to the better angels of our nature. The Civil War demanded a shepherd so that America could finally have its good definition of liberty. For us today, the 1776 reports Shepherd could be said to be the Claremont Institute, a Southern California think tank whose purpose is to restore the principles of their American founding to their rightful preeminent authority in our national life. The scholarship bears the stamp of the work of political philosopher Harry Jaffa, who was the principal teacher of the chairman and executive director of the commission, as well as many of the staff. Jaffa was a scholar of the Declaration, Lincoln, and the American political principles of equality and liberty. Glenn Elmers says of Jaffa, A good argument can be made that were it not for Jaffa's 60 years of influential scholarship, 
the New York Times and its allies would not have found it necessary to launch the 1619 Project. This assault on America's history and meaning was deemed necessary, at least in part, because of the work of the Claremont School. Without its decades of advocacy and educational programs, the American founding, the spirit of 76, would be even more distant and unfamiliar today than it already is. Elsewhere, should America deteriorate as much as Jaffa feared, Elmer's raises a horrifying possibility. America as an identity or political movement might need to carry on without the United States. This is where we are today, on the brink of another civil war and a recurrence to fundamental principles. Is America a disembodied spirit that is a ghost or a real nation? In carefully considering this question, we are not without resources to guide us. For example, the 1776 report. Thank you, Ken Misugi, for getting all this. Thank you, Harry Jaffa, for teaching all of this. And thank you, America, for everything. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. He said, curiously, that's a bumper I didn't put in there, isn't it? It's a new one. See if you like it. It's a band called Diesel, Sausalito Summer Nights, 1980. How did this come to us? A sports radio morning show that I like to listen to. Outside of this market, of course. You brought it here. You brought brought it it here. This was on your initiative, not a listener or caller. Right. Okay. Well, let's leave it in. Let's let's fly it up the flagpole and... See how it waves. Right, it's a keeper. Let's fly it up the flagpole and see how many people salute it. 602-508-0960. This is Open Lines Friday. Anything you want to put on the table and discuss, we are happy to do so. I've got a lot to go over with you, and we've got to get to this Robert Shaw thing that uh, Bill placed on my desk three days ago, a um, pencil sketch of the actor Robert Shaw playing Quentin Jaws with a bunch of Highlights and quotes and word clouds. I, I haven't asked Bill about it. I thought it was just too weird or interesting to do not on air. So we'll do it on air. Hopefully it's clean and all that. Yeah, it is fun Friday. Uh, surprising to me how easily off message the Biden administration can get taken. And it's resultant from their own unserious ideologies. For example, do you think any of them wanted to be caught up in the problem at the border this way? It has totally taken them off their message. And now guns. Now, now, now they feel they have to respond to a recent spate of killings that compressed and highlighted looks obviously as part of a feeding frenzy for a crisis, but as analyzed as each and individ- every individual one is different, as different, analyzed as, as different, as individual as they are, you realize 
that what the Biden administration is proposing doesn't address the larger issue of guns and violence in America. Of course, there was a mass shooting this morning in Indianapolis, or I guess late last night. We got news of it this morning in Indianapolis, where yet again you have a alleged shooter here who takes his own life in the practice of it, in the uh, exercise of it all to, uh, last night, who um, again, yet again, had friends and family trying to get into the mental health, into the mental health, um, into the into the mental health uh, help and help uh, institutions in um, in Illinois, trying to get him the mental health help he needed because they knew he was a danger to himself and others, and they couldn't do it. They couldn't get it done. We're talking about triggers in the head, mostly, not triggers in the barrel of a gun or at the end of a gun or at the end or it's attached to a rifle. I want to say something about that mental health debate some 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 years ago over one of these tragic incidents. Mona Sharon wrote that misplaced civil libertarian impulses have caused states to strictly circumscribe the capacity, that is to say, narrow the capacity of families of the mentally ill to have them involuntarily committed for care. There are stories of many desperate families of psychotics who approach mental health authorities and police numerous times about disturbing behavior they witnessed, only to be told there was nothing to be done if the patient didn't choose to be treated. Looks like that was true in Indianapolis as well. One mother recounted waking up to see her son standing over her bed with a knife in his hand. When the mentally ill person lashes out with violence, though, it's too late. Clearly, we don't want families to be able to lock up their relatives in psych units for years at a time for trivial or selfish reasons. Treatment is expensive and the mentally ill have rights. But the mentally ill are uniquely incapable of exercising their rights and their autonomy when in the grip of mania or delusions. To insist upon their right to refuse treatment when they cannot reason is itself unreasonable. Totally and fully agree with that. And until we're able to, as a society make up our minds about how we want to deal with triggers in the head. There will not be enough laws you can pass that will take the triggers on the gun out of the hands of law-abiding citizens. I'm Seth Leibson, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, this open line Friday. Bill had a good question for you all. What was it? What TV, what comic, what comic TV show? What movie or TV show best encapsulates your sense of humor? What movie or TV show best encapsulates your sense of humor or who you are? Sure. What character can yeah. you point to and say that right there? Okay. If you get that That's character. That's a fun question. I, I, I've me. never heard it asked before. That's a fun question. Robert Woodson Sr. is a hero of mine and a hero to many in the civil rights movement uh, for his work back in the 60s with Dr. King and others. 
and I think he's still one of the uh, great honest men working, efforting civil rights in this country and adapting it to the times as they have changed. He writes in the Wall Street Journal, are, are only white people capable of hate crimes? If you get all your news from mainstream media sources, that's what you'd think. A 51-year-old black man <clears throat> allegedly stabbed a 12-year-old white boy in Pittsburgh while shouting racial epithets, and it barely made any news. The same was true when a black man was arrested for savagely beating a 65-year-old Asian woman in midtown Manhattan. We saw endless coverage of the despicable assault on the Capitol on January 6th, but when a 25-year-old black male allegedly killed a Capitol police officer last week, MSNBC reported the suspect was white, which he was not. Throughout 2020, there was a rise in violence against Asian Americans, but the race of the perpetrators was typically mentioned only when they were white. Media and other elites obsessively push the narrative that the greatest threat in this country is coming from white supremacists. This gross oversimplification has dire consequences for the most vulnerable in our society, those living in the poorest neighborhoods, and for the nation as a whole. Woodson continues, a media environment in which the only acceptable villains are white creates a more dangerous world for all of us. The rust judgment based on skin color is familiar to those of us who lived through segregation. In those days, some in law enforcement couldn't care less about crimes committed by blacks against other blacks, but there were severe penalties for offenses against whites. We marched and demanded fair and equal treatment under the law. As far as the application of criminal law, much of what is happening today is a retreat to the pre-civil rights South. Every tragic police killing of a black person is amplified by radical progressives to accuse police of white supremacy and to push for defunding and anarchy. The more law enforcement officers we lose to defunding, early retirement, and drastic drops in recruitment, the fewer we have to patrol low-income neighborhoods. Homicides among lower-income minorities soar. Meanwhile, the cries of the 81% of blacks who oppose defunding the police are chronically ignored. The loudest advocates of defunding the police don't have to live with the consequence of their advocacy. The L.A. City Council president pushed for defunding the police while having a personal police escort at her home. Thanks to so-called racial progressives like her, low-income black neighborhoods are experiencing some of what it was like to live in the pre-civil rights South. The assertion that blacks must rely on white people to solve all their problems by somehow ending systemic and institutional racism is both nonsensical and self-defeating. By focusing on the past and present sins of white America as the source of all of our problems, we ignore the enemy within and that which is in our power to change. We turn a blind eye to the destruction within our communities that, that is consuming more of our lives than the Klan ever did, even at the height of its power. Furthermore, remedies applied to a single racial group almost always include a kind of bait-and-switch. The so social pathologies are the bait, high unemployment, poverty, inequities in education, high crime rates, and so on. When the remedy arrives, generally money, you get the switch. 
A large share of the benefits never go to the people actually suffering from high unemployment or poverty or crime. They go to the elite members of that race who already are insulated and connected enough to capture the prizes. We'll tell you, or Bob will tell you, how other companies like Coca-Cola and Delta get away with it and do it routinely when we come right back. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Robert Woodson, I just wanted to give you the conclusion of his piece in the Wall Street Journal about the media's racial narrative and the harm it does. Um, let me focus on this last part for half a moment before I go to your calls, because I think it's everything. This is everything. Woodson writes, for example, Coca-Cola now requires the law firms that do business with it to have 30 percent of their attorney, attorneys be people of color. Other companies, such as Wells Fargo, Ralph Lauren, and Delta Airlines, are following suit with their own racial quotas for highly skilled positions. Even race-neutral programs aimed at lower-income households spend most of their funding on their middle-class administrators rather than on their supposed beneficiaries. How does this help low-income blacks trapped in unsafe neighborhoods and failing schools? How does requiring corporations to have certain percentages of women of color on their boards of directors help the thousands of black women in prison, many of whom are being mistreated by their guards, most of whom are also black? Race remains a salient issue in America, but not only because of whites victimizing minorities. Yet the U.S. is the world's most prosperous and harmonious multiracial society. We have some serious problems we must address, but we can't solve them unless we're willing to speak about them honestly. There's that honestly word again. The word truth and the word honest at such great discount these days. Larry is in Tempe. Hello, Larry. Hi, Seth. It's been a while since I've called. but Yes, I recognize your voice. How are you, sir? It has yeah, been a while. Doing well. I've been listening. I just haven't called. Fair enough. So... Uh, that that article you just were reading, uh, that is powerful. That is very powerful. Um, as Dennis Prager likes to say, truth isn't a value of the left. Correct. It just isn't a value. So anyway, I called because with all these recent mass shootings and things, we know that the purpose of the left will be to use those to blame or to blame it on guns and say how we have to get rid of guns. And overall, tearing away of some of our traditions, some of our, like in this case, a constitutional standard. But they do that and they totally miss what I think is the cause of anything like this. And that is... Uh, as has been occurring over 50, 60, 70 years, kind of an eroding of some principles on which the country was founded, uh, a belief in or acceptance of a creator, and how that 
brings us as humans into a proper perspective. You know, if I believe in or at least have a respect for a greater power, I probably am not going to see myself as the answer to all the problems or as the person that's going to make a decision on morals. I'm going to depend on another moral code. Another aspect of what they've changed in an eroded way is the value of life. And that's been, in many ways, going on longer than just Roe v. Wade, but abortion is one example, that if life has no more value than you end it in the the uterus and get rid of it, then why would we not expect people who have been taught in our public schools, unfortunately, for years that all you are is a clump of cells, you haven't been made for a purpose, your value is very low, and when you have a problem, whether an emotional or psychological problem, There is no overriding power that says, but you don't deal with it this way because those other lives matter. And your life matters too, even if you don't see it at the moment. So the left just doesn't see that when you tell people they don't matter, that they believe that about themselves, but they believe it about other people too. So it becomes so much easier for them to Go shoot eight people, seven or eight people, or go run someone down in a vehicle at the Capitol or to do any other things that have happened recently, none of which is the blame of the weapon used. But it's the blame of the individuals that are the first to blame. But just the fact that we take away a person's value, and that's there's no other conclusion you can come to except they're going to treat their life and everyone else's with that equal low level of value. You know, you said a lot there, Larry, and um, you have to ask yourself a couple of things about when is the sociology of America's virtue deficit going to be connected to the index of failing human actions in this country. When is, for example, as you could put it, would put it, the caustic, casual, cavalier, and coarsening attitudes towards life When is that going to be connected to a societal attitude that diminishes the importance of life? And how long does Mm -hmm. it take? Why are political theorists and scientists so unwilling to make those most obvious of connections? That when a society or a culture teaches you something, they become surprised all of a sudden that people learn it or take it seriously. What they learn to love in fiction, you now blame them for acting out in serious or in earnest 
I have friends who have been in the pro-life movement for many, many years who say Roe versus Wade made politics in America impossible. What do they mean by that? They mean by that something I just pulled up here that Jesse Jackson, of all people, said. Once upon a time, he was pro-life, and he wrote this in 1978. What happens to the mind of a person in the moral fabric of a nation that accepts the aborting of the life of a baby without a pang of conscience? What kind of person and what kind of a society will we have years hence when life can be taken so casually? It is that question, the question of our attitude and our value system and our mindset with regard to the nature and worth of life itself that is the central question confronting mankind Failure to answer that question affirmatively may leave us with a hell right here on earth. I show you the times. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Open lines Friday. Anything you want. We have Andy Biggs coming up. With an update on the border, he'll do uh, be with us at the top of the hour. Uh, other than that, yours now and yours uh, through the rest of the day. Anything on your mind? Eric's in Phoenix. Hi, Eric. What's happening, Seth? How are you, sir? Oh, I'm not too shabby. Good. Um, I, I get embarrassed anymore when I hear the old argument that without a belief in a supreme creator, uh, there are no morals. Uh, it, it's an absolutely absurd Dance. You didn't and hear me make that argument, did you? No, your caller did. Oh, okay. Do you, do you not hold that argument to be true? You think uh, phrase it the way you did, people? Eric. Phrase it, phrase it exactly if you can as you just po- posed it to me again so uh, I answer the question. Without belief in a supreme creator, uh, we cannot have morals. I believe some people believe that, and I believe that my caller believed that. Okay. And I believe that some people believe that um, with a great deal of credibility, but I don't believe you have to believe that. I don't believe you have to have a creator to have morality. Okay, and that's that's wise, and I'm glad I'm glad Uh, to hear that. But Uh, I think people who do believe it have a good case for it. Well, we can differ there, and we can discuss that further if you like. But I think that the Republican Party and the conservative movement, um, of which you know I've been a member, I'm 45 years old. Um, and uh, just like many other conservatives, the, the Republican Party means pretty much nothing to me anymore. Um, but I am an atheist, and I know lots of thinking atheists that are conservative and hold conservative values. And by always talking in a negative way about atheists, as if, if all atheists are the people that want to remove the Ten Commandments from courtrooms and uh, remove In God We Trust for money and... All atheists are not militant jerks. They're just people that happen to not believe in a God. I don't um, think you've and, ever and heard me, probably you haven't no, heard no, no. me criticize no, no, no. atheists. I, I'm not making any accusations okay. towards you. But, but uh, there are many, many radio hosts and you know conservative uh, personalities that basically equate atheists with 
you know, all the evil in the world. And I well, let me just pause on this point, Eric, because this is that. a big topic and I have a heartbreak and I would invite you to call back later if you want, today even, because uh, i got to do an interview up front. But let me make a couple observations. If they animate you to call back or even hold if you want, I'm happy to return to it with you because it's a serious set of things you're saying. <clears throat> First of all, um, whether others equate atheists with evil, I, I can't speak for. Um, if they are associating atheists with the political left, polling bears that out. But that, you know, you know, bears that Jews are affiliate with the left as well. But boy, how does that account for Prager and Levin and so many on this station, me, right? So I get the outliers as well, and we have to be welcoming and encouraging of them. Um, but um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I think even Dennis Prager has said that you can get your morality without God. I think it's harder. I think it's harder. But we can talk more about it. I'm happy to.